Dressed? The History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast which explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Dressed listeners, today Cass and I are absolutely thrilled to be joined by one of fashion's living legends, the one, the only, Barbara Hulanicki, and Barbara and fashion historian Martin Pell, who is the curator of fashion and textiles at the Brighton Museum in the UK, are going to join us to discuss all things Biba. And if you aren't familiar with the brand Biba, trust me, you are in for a treat because it is literally Every cool kid's dream. (laughs) Definitely. Every cool kid's dream then and now. Honestly, because Biba rose to meteoric success in 1963 and burned bright as a star on the UK youth-driven fashion scene until 1975. And the brand's sudden and curious demise was in no way due to lack of demand. Biba quite literally had the rug pulled out from beneath it. And this is something we, of course, will illuminate further at the end of the episode. But perhaps, April, a little more discussion of the Biba lifestyle is in order before we speak to the brand's founder. So I'm curious, April, when you think of Biba, what comes to mind? Oh, I mean, I don't even know where to start because it's so me. It is so my aesthetic (laughs) through and through. I would describe it as sexy, cool, maybe a little bit mysterious, definitely very unique. There's also some cinematic qualities to the brand and their advertising and just how they portrayed the entire thing. You know, it's kind of like at the time, it was the epitome of in-the-know chic. It was so much more than a clothing brand because in the matter of 12 years or so, Biba grew to become this sort of lifestyle that wasn't just clothing. Um, They also had a wildly successful cosmetic line, which is, of course, put to work in the Biba Beauty Parlor. Which (laughs) Biba Beauty Parlor, take me there immediately. I want to (laughs) go. Transport me back. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, after getting pampered at the beauty parlor, you could literally spend the entire rest of your day at Biba. You could have lunch at their restaurant. You can attend an art film screening. And then you could literally roll into late night at Biba in their rainbow room to hear performances from the likes of Liberace and also the New York Dolls. (laughs) Like I said, put me in a time machine. Take me back. This sounds amazing. So if this all sounds impossibly hip dress listeners, it's because it was. Everyone from Keith Richards to Barbara Streisand, Mia Farrow, and Annie Lennox were Biba super fans. Lennox actually recalled in 2013 that, quote, Biba led the way for those of us young girls living in provincial places where we felt we were dying of drabness. She was the first person to introduce colors like mulberry, plum, rust, and blueberry, and she reinvented herringbone tweed, gangster hats, and 1930s satins. Biba was to die for. Yes. And when I think of Biba, I think of a lot of vintage inspiration. So Barbara loves fashion history, just like we all do. And I also think of a very specific color palette, which was much, much darker than mainstream fashion at the time. And Barbara's designs were often head-to-toe looks that were tonal, you know, right down from the hat on your head to your stockings and your knee-high Biba boots, which are one of their signatures. And All of this, your entire ensemble, you could actually coordinate with your Biba interiors because as the company expanded their offerings, they grew to include wallpaper, rugs, even vintage furniture, all of which had been Bibafied. So, you know, the interiors of the Biba boutiques can be described as nothing less than sensual. They were really important to the creation of the brand. So just imagine walking into a room that's been painted completely black, and then you have mirrored walls, velvet cushions, palm fronds, decorative plumes in vases in lieu of flowers, and the furniture, well, which was often vintage, had been reupholstered in twalls and 
oh, so many animal prints. So, you know, I hope you get a picture of this aesthetic. The Bebo look was romantic. It was sultry. And it was very reliant on nostalgia. And just a little tidbit on the cut of Barbara's clothes. They're very unique, very specific. They often featured really, really long torsos, super straight arms, and very sharply clipped shoulders. So we cannot wait to share more with you about the rise of Biba and are so pleased that Barbara and Martin are here with us today. Barbara and Martin, it is such an honor to have both of you here with us today on Dressed. Welcome. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, and I actually think this is the first time we've ever had both a designer and a curator together on the show. So this is something novel for us. We're so excited. And and Martin, I think it's rather rare that fashion curators actually get to know their subjects personally, like you and Barbara have. Yeah. Would you tell us a little bit about how you first met and then began working together on an exhibition? Yeah. So I, I first met Barbara, I think it was 2010. And they yeah. just made a documentary, yeah, it was 11 years ago. They just made a documentary about you, Barbara. Do you remember it was called uh, Beyond Bieber? Yeah. It was by Delicia's son. Yeah. yeah. Became the film. Delicia was yeah. one of Barbara's, she worked in Bieber and she was the house model. So they made this documentary and Barbara did a sort of tour of the UK and she came to Brighton because that's obviously where she grew up. And it was shown at Brighton University so I went along and I was chatting to you. I saw the film. And then at the end, I said, there'd been this idea to do a Bieber exhibition for a long time at Brighton Museum because of obviously Barbara's history with the city. Um, but nothing had materialised. My predecessor had started working on some uh, an exhibition. So but then I suggested to Barbara that we work on a Bieber exhibition. Barbara went back to Miami and we continued talking. And then it just sort of got slightly bigger. And it turned really into a Barbara Hulunicki retrospective. So from her childhood, through Bebar, through to all her stuff in Miami, and up to what she was doing at that point in time, which was 2012. Well, we're so excited to talk to both of you today. Barbara, I think many of our listeners who might not already be familiar with Biba are going to be so incredibly enthralled to learn of the story of how you created this brand, which really became a fashion universe. Unlike anything the world had ever seen. But before we get to the story of Bebo, which is something you've kind of been talking about a little bit, I'm hoping we can learn a little bit more about the story of Barbara, because you were born in Warsaw and Warsaw, Poland, but you grew up in Jerusalem and then later moved to England. Can you tell us a little bit about these formative years? It's incredible. Uh, Yes, uh, my father was uh, Polish consul general in the Middle East, which was Palestine, uh, Transjordan, Lebanon, and Syria. And we were there before the war. I was born in 36, and I think the war started in 39. And by chance, we had to go to Warsaw to go to the doctor because there were no doctors in Palestine. So, uh, and only by going there did my father had to go to the head office and they said to him, you've got to leave today practically no clothes, nothing. You can't even go because the war is starting in three days' time. Can you imagine? And the, the, the Nazis came in, you know, literally three days after, and everybody had to leave who could uh, also. Then uh, I had this incredible life in Palestine, which was my mother was terribly beautiful, beautiful clothes, and looked amazing. It was like always embarrassing to be seen with her and because she looked so gorgeous Um, and you had all these poor polish people they weren't the jewish people yet from the camps they were from russia they were all let up from russia from the gulags and they came down and my father was organizing schools for the for polish schools so there was a huge polish community and these poor children, it was amazing because they they hadn't been eating anything. They were eating um, cats and dogs that had been buried and soused with um, petrol to stop people eating them. And it was amazing because you, you sort of, two, three days' time when they arrived, they were all happy and, and um, you know, children can't remember anything. It was amazing. It was incredible. And uh, so my mother kept giving all these amazing children's parties. 
And I would stand outside the front door and give away all her things to all the children, all the mothers when they came to collect children. And one day my mother just would not forgive me. I was giving away her eyebrow tweakers that you couldn't buy during the war. (laughs) Little metal things. (laughs) uh, It was terrible. But the Polish were always, we're Catholics. And we weren't Jewish, but we were uh, spent all our time in all the uh, basilicas in old Jerusalem. We lived in Jerusalem, and it was just magical. It was like living in a a film, really, with all these different religions, and uh, it was incredible. I thought I was going to be a nun because it looked so glamorous at one stage. <laughs> no, it was it was incredible, and then then. Everything was 1948 when Palestine was was going to become Israel eventually at the time. Uh, my father was killed by the, uh, by the uh, communist, Polish communists, because they were very frightened of all the people of, of any sort of power and, and, and influence going back to Poland and causing trouble. And so we had to go to England. He was really taken away the day we were leaving and we never saw him again. And then we left for England and then we were met by my aunt. (laughs) It was a a trying time, believe me. Yeah. I thought I knew English very well, but I didn't understand anything. And we went to this amazing school that he's always had a laugh at. It's it's a, a boarding school in Worthing. It was yeah. a beautiful Georgian summer house or something. And um, I didn't know what was going on half the time. You know, one struggled with my aunt, the death of my father, and uh, an English, learning English. Oh, my God. I thought I, I knew English and I, I didn't know anything. I just had to sit there with my mouth shut. And these were your formative years, right? Because you had ended up attending art school for a period in Brighton and you began working as a fashion illustrator professionally. You got married in your mid-20s and it was actually your husband, Stephen, who petitioned you to veer into fashion design away from fashion illustration, although that certainly comes into play too. Of course, my aunt wouldn't let me go to a, a Brighton College, which was an art school, because I would meet people with dirty fingernails. Hello. And so I had two years of literally drawing, drawing, drawing. And then it was just being so stressful at home that um, I heard about this studio in London, Helen Jardine artist, who did uh, illustri- uh, fashion illustration. And after being an art school for two years and just drawing, you know, like art school nudes all the time, these old, old floppy old nudes, and and uh, it wasn't it was funny because. But do, do, I, I was just telling somebody how fashion as a future was really looked down because the teachers in the art school part, they would say, oh, you're one of those, you're over there. It was incredible. It was like that it had no authority or anything. Okay, so I get a job with this Helen Jardine artist and I'm so excited. And then when I get, which is in London, then I work my way up through corsets into going to all the shows in Paris. At first, I was working a lot with all the well, daily papers, used uh, illustrations and uh, magazines, and then going to Paris. And it was a really interesting time in Paris because you were sent by a newspaper or a magazine like Tatler or not Vogue, but Women's Wear Daily or some sort of more technical and what used to happen in the Paris show, the, the clothes in Paris shows, I mean, I have sat through Dior for like five hours with the same dress going back around with two buttons, the same dress with three buttons. It was really for ladies who lunched, you know, old ladies. Well, 40 was old to us in any way. 
I mean, I did like four years of that. Golly, that was really hard work. But having seen all this awful fashion all the time, it really was sort of Balenciaga and everybody. Was, but again, I'm, I'm 18, 19. All I want is so embarrassing. I have no clothes to wear to all these things. And I'm earning money. Then this amazing thing happens where Audrey Hepburn arrives, you know, and she sort of like cleans up all the all the old-fashioned uh, couture bit and, and brings a completely new angle to it. And I was actually stuck in an elevator with her once at Givenchy, and I was like, oh, my heart was going. It was so sweet. It was really nice. And her, her feet, she had bigger feet than me, and I thought, wow, she's real. <laughs> she's a real person. <laughs> Barbara, everything you're saying about kind of the haute couture shows and and everything you're talking about, it's kind of like this stuffy, maybe. It's a little bit older. It's like the old guard, right? And what you bring in, you and your husband bring in with Biba is basically ushering in this entire new era of how people shop, how people dress. It's such an exciting period. How did you come up with the idea for Biba? Well, the thing is that uh, what what's happened is the young people have left home from all the suburbs and from all the uh, around England, and they're in London, and they want to dress, and they've all got jobs, and uh, they've got money to spend, and everybody wants to dress up, go dancing, whatever they were doing, and uh, Fitz was in advertising, but advertising agencies were the the agencies usually that. Illustrators would, I mean, they they would have a, a customer who was, I don't know, Vogue or, or maybe some mass-producing uh, fashion person, and they would hire illustrators. And Fitz is an, an advertising agency, and when we meet, da da da, he says, you know, your your thing is over. You've got you've got to go back into fashion, you know, style or what, whatever it is. Design. And design you did, Barbara. You and your husband, uh, Stephen Fitzsimon, started a mail order business, which was called Biba's Postal Boutique. And you named this after your sister. It was your sister's nickname, Biba. And you offered simple but very hip, ready-to-wear designs like shift dresses and drawstring waist maxi skirts, all of which you advertise in newspapers. And I think it's one journalist that you credit with for some of your First successes, Felicity Green. Felicity <laughs> Green on the mirror was real. She's really great. She's a real tough lady. Barbara, come around. I want a dress. I said, yes. Um, I, what dress are you going to do for us? Uh, I said, oh, pink gingham, because Bridget Barder's wearing pink gingham in, um, in Saint-Tropez. Um, she said, great. I want it for 25 shillings. I said, yes, sure, until I get home. And Fitz said, never ever price anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, okay, in the next few days, we sold 9,000, 10,000 dresses. Wow. Barbara, how did you handle this overnight success? We used to have this address in uh, Oxford Street, or our mail used to go to, and then... We used to go and collect our mail in the mornings. And it's usually, you know, it was a pack like this. And this this particular day, Fitz comes around the corner dragging two sacks. And he says, two more. And this was daily. We had sacks and sacks and sacks. One size, one color. I mean, it, it sounds like heaven for a manufacturer. But it sure wasn't <laughs> in gingham, especially when you realize that gingham takes ages to produce because it's woven, it's not to print. So we learned very quickly. We thought 200 would sell, but we wouldn't <laughs> sell any, hoping, because we, 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 we did make a halfpenny each, so it was really big profits. <laughs> but the, no banks would take all the mail order because mail order used to come in a, a sort of a thing you had to fill in and do a lot of paperwork, and nobody would take the money. So we were walking around 
Kensington, wondering what to do with these sacks. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I think one of the big banks took it and eventually Lloyd's or, or uh, Barclays. And also, luckily, we met this incredible man, Greek, and got in with all the Greek manufacturers in, in London who were quite near us. And Fitz used to have to go Greek dancing every Friday <laughs> to get production. <laughs> and the smash plates and things. <laughs> oh, God. It was amazing, but it was an incredible crowd of in London at the time, you see. What we worked out too, what he well Fitz worked out is that a girl was earning, which doesn't sound much now, like it was nine pounds a week. Uh, she was spending three pounds a week on a bed set from because uh, they all came in from North England and so on. And she would spend three pounds a week on food. They didn't eat in those days. <laughs> and three pounds in beaver. <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> we had a three pound top price. And this is the moment that your mail order business turned into a boutique, if I am correct. It was just amazing. I mean, this, this premises we take, which was this beautiful, beautiful old um, chemist shop, Victorian chemist shop, which was all black and gold interiors, glass interiors, really gorgeous ceilings and everything. And we, we used that for storage for the mail order. I was in there one Saturday and I was just, you know, just sorting the clothes out and things. And suddenly it was filled with girls. I mean, it was just full of people wanting to buy things. And so I was ringing this, please break more clothes down quickly, quickly. It was, it was incredible because it was word of mouth because we were quite far away from High Street Kensington and the tube station because life revolves around tube stations in England, you know, in London, central London. And of course, what happened then is the reason and all the guys that came in because Fitz would not go shopping with me ever. <laughs> and uh, I did the shop like a sitting room. So there were sofas and hangout and the music was terribly loud, the latest music, and it had to be the latest music from LA and whatever. And all the, um, all the music people started coming in to meet girls and girls and boyfriends and became sort of little scene. It was incredible. The mothers used to stand outside saying, what's going on in there? <laughs> there must be, because it was all dark, very dark, and it was very loud. Martin, as a fashion historian, can you tell us a little bit about the London fashion scene at this time? Because as we all kind of have already discussed, it was increasingly youth-driven. And we've already done an episode on Mary Quant, so some of our listeners might be familiar with her story. But how did Biba fit into all of this during the mid-1960s? Yeah, so, I mean, the boutiques that existed in London, very, very small, they sort of grew. Really, you have to go back to the mid-50s, really, to understand what happened then in the mid-60s. So you've got the teenage growth of teenager, people have got money in their pockets, but they haven't got anything to spend it on, as Barbara was saying. Uh, and so these boutiques begin to develop. And as we said earlier, you know, it was really the first boutiques were to do with menswear. Um, yeah. One of the very first ones was it's called Vince's, actually. And it yeah. was uh, he, the guy that run Vince's, his name was Bill Green, and he was a photographer. And he, um, it was a very gay shop. So it was sort of very theatrical, sort of what we would now term gay. And George Melly actually said when he yeah. went, the only, it's the only shop where they measure your inside leg when you buy a tie. So it had he was dressing sort of niche people because it was a gay clientele. The clothes were very sexy for what was then um, what men wore. So it was quite tight. It was based on the a sort of Italian styling. And it really, out of that, developed the mod look. Uh, John Stephen, as we spoke about earlier, he became a shop assistant there. He was an 18-year-old kid. He came from Glasgow, worked at Vince's, yeah. and then an entrepreneur and opened up his first Carnaby Street and basically created Carnaby Street. And really, that was men's fashion. 
It's amazing. Yeah, and, and it was men really making an identity for themselves through clothes, through where they shopped, what they listened to. Um, and this gradually grew, grew into boutique culture at Meriquan on the King's Road, 1955. There was also Kiki Byrne, who was another designer. Oh, she was amazing. Nobody's given her the accolade. No, she has been slightly forgotten, really. And then you've got James Wedge. Yeah. Down. In 64, James Wedge was yeah. a milliner. Uh, and he worked for the couturier called Ronald Patterson. Uh, but he, he sort of threw that in and decided he wanted to be much more funky. So he opened Countdown and then Bieber opened. So the boutique culture wasn't huge, but it was growing. And then Barbara comes along with Bieber and sees everyone sees what a success it could be yeah. made. All these thousands of imitators all of a sudden appear. And also you have to remember that the exchange was really very good, the money. So you had all the French and the Italians coming in at weekends, but masses of them. They used to go to Portobello Road and down uh, Church Street. I mean, huge amounts of them, because you can imagine how cheap the clothes were then. It was a very incredible period, oh my God. It was just never stopped. Barbara, I'm hoping you can tell us about your business model at this time, because Biba has actually been cited as the originator of the fast fashion model, which, of course, during this period was something very, very new. You were not designing collections based on the season, but instead launching new designs every few weeks, and you were doing all of your own production, which is just incredible. Yeah. Which was, uh, phew, it was hard work. But it was <laughs> Um, <laughs> to start something you have to like keep it going because what we were doing what Fitz was amazing at production and stuff we were producing delivering every three weeks new stuff and the, so there would be like a delivery every day practically and the girls in the shop by the time we were in the second shop quite a few girls and they would tell the the pub, the public that phoned what was coming in, and if the thing that had come in wasn't what they'd been told, they would be sitting there. This is nice to run away because we'd be beaten up any minute because certain blouse with the big puffy sleeves didn't come in. <laughs> oh God, it, it was hair raising, and then we found that every sort of two years, the shop would be so full that we'd have to have a, a bigger space for just put the people in. And just to get them to the changing rooms were communal by chance. Everything happened by chance there. You kind of worked on things that worked, you know, like we decided to, uh, after the first shop, it was everything was behind uh, sort of deco screens that kept collapsing. and. You know, whoever was behind there, like even Julie Christie, I mean, they just kept on taking the clothes off and putting new ones on, and they didn't care. And the same thing happened in the changing room, and we were going to put partitioning in, and then we found people didn't really care about that. So we always <laughs> always left it as one communal room and tried to get stop the boys going in. <laughs> I remember as a child, and I would go with my mum into... Uh, yeah. I was a little kid. Oh, really? <laughs> I mean, what you did for practical purposes, I, you know, it was just people didn't care because they were young, actually yeah. became standard within the industry. And I do remember yeah. going to shop and sit on the floor, and my mum would be in a room with lots of other women with mirrors yeah. in. And, uh, Piles of clothes. Piles of clothes. But I just think now I think on it, I think oh, it must have been horrible, actually, to just taking your clothes off anyway but yeah so what you were doing for yeah purposes. and even like barbara streisland came in and she had she was really big uh, stomach she was having a baby and we said oh we will find you a lovely little room she said no i don't she went straight in there took all her clothes off that was incredible <laughs> i mean i would argue that you know the boutiques were incredibly important within your entire estate. Aesthetic. And Martin, um, I want to quote you again. You said, if 
Mary Quant's Bazaar was a permanently running cocktail party. Biba was a nonstop Fellini film. Biba was, if nothing else, about drama, which is so, so, so wonderful. <laughs> more about the, the drama, you know, the, the first shot producer was said, Barbara, you know, it was, it was dark, you know, yeah. it, was, it was like a nightclub. You wanted people to come in here. You wanted to come into the shop. They weren't necessarily coming in. If they didn't buy anything, you weren't particularly bothered. No, they came to steal. What do you mean by steal, Barbara? Were people shoplifting? <laughs> if they're not stealing, they don't. The things are no good because they only sell the good stuff. That was the whole of quality, was there? Which I suppose speaks to the popularity of Biba at this time. Martin, would you tell us a little bit about Biba's expansion? I mean, your shops changed, and so the, the drama sort of got bigger and bigger. So you had yeah. Abbey, which was yeah. incredible, the first shop, um, quite dark, and you would come in there and you know just be part of the scene. And then obviously it needed a bigger shop, so you went to Church Street. And this was just absolutely full of clothes. You had the Bentwood yeah. hat stand and sort of merchandise. Oh, and mean. Yeah. So it was like, you know, some sort of Medina or a sort of North African suit. You know, it was just really busy. The third shop was a department store that became slightly more sophisticated. And then it just all exploded with Big Beaver, seven-story department. Yeah. Yeah. Which is incredible. If you think, just in 10 years, you've gone from... In 1963, from a mail order company to 10 years later to a seven story department store on Kensington, that is the definition of a phenomenon. That is incredible. Yes. Well, there was food there, you see. So (laughs) 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 just the food. (laughs) We could survive. And there was drink as well for fit. So he was happy. (laughs) And uh, oh, God. The seven-story department store was known as Big Biba, and it had it all. It had clothes, cosmetics, furniture, home goods, and the restaurant, as you just mentioned. Actually, with Biba, Big Biba, you know, if you had a doctor's and if you had a laundrette, you probably never needed to leave because yeah. you could come with your clothes, you could have your yeah. makeup on, you could go to the beauty salon, you could go to yeah. the cafe, and you could go to the restaurant in the evening and then the yeah. nightclub. Really, your life's complete. But that was the whole idea, Martin, because in the 30s, that's what they used to do in the department stores. The ladies would come with a chauffeur. You know, they work their way up, doing their hair, their nails, their shopping. They probably only did it once or twice a month. I don't know. But also we were going to do a cinema. We went through the whole thing of doing a small cinema on the top floor and then we found there weren't enough films to show to keep changing that would you know sort of uh, films that were sort of art films not the big ones you had to have the enough films to rent and there weren't so we had to leave that for a while and then we had a special uh, department for hair beauty and all, the whole thing where People can't come in and be done over. And the, the best thing was there was a James Bond film opening of opposite. And Brick Eklund came in. You know what she looked like, sort of like gorgeous blonde hair. She comes in. And Regis, the French guy who would run the whole thing, he does her over. He spent, she spent all day, poor thing, in this room. And then he makes her hair gorgeous. And she's hair is flying all over the place. And she's wearing all these sexy clothes from the shop. And then she goes to the opening and nobody recognized her. <laughs> <laughs> it was so awful, poor girl. <laughs> so she didn't get the accolade. What was the culture like inside the Biba Salon? Can you kind of give us an idea of what like an everyday might have been like? I'm sure one day might not have been like the other, but what was it like? Because music and dancing was such a fun part of the culture at that time too. To start with, it was all women in there. All women behind the scenes. We never realized it, but it was an all women, except for Fitz, <laughs> uh, company. And what was so strange is that when women are all together, they work terribly hard. And they, if there is a drone, they get rid of them. 
Do you know what I mean? And also, my other thing was we used to give a birthday cake to people when the birthday was on, always. And it was, you know, 10 birthday cakes or something like that at the beginning. But when we reached 400 birthday cakes, <laughs> it was, if there were certain times of the year where it was like hundreds of birthday cakes every day. And I said, this is really weird. What was going on? Barbara, I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about the Biba design philosophy and the overall aesthetic, and especially the way that you have used color has always felt very intentional to me, at least. Would you tell us a little bit just about the overall Biba aesthetic? Well, well, what we did was, and we learned right at the beginning, the whole thing, we produced everything ourselves. So the whole thing is on the fabric. On your, so we always invested in fabric, basic fabrics that were like either jersey, uh, sort of crepe de chine and uh, chiffony, and then we would dye uh, 16 colors, say, and have bales of the stuff waiting to be cut. And that was cut as we went along. It sort of worked slowly like this. That I mean, my whole thing was all about the shapes, because in France, in the cheap boutiques like Signor Riquel and everybody, you could get really gorgeous shaped clothes. But in England, you know, you had armholes somewhere down the waist and awful. So <laughs> we had pattern cutters that there was one particular one. And in England, that you didn't have good pattern cutters at the time. People weren't trained. There were no art schools at the time. And that we developed tremendously so that there was continual cutting of, say, if you had a, a winner on a certain shape, you, you might change the neck, and da, 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 but it was always new styles coming in and out. We had the fabric. Do you know what I mean? We had complete power over our, our production. And to start with, I, I was very influenced by... Uh, by my mom, my mother, and unfortunately my aunt too, and these funny colors, <laughs> having to wear her plum, dirty plum, <laughs> uh, crepe dresses, leftovers. But it's funny because in England, it's like here in Miami and America, the light is very bright and you can take very strong colors. But in England, if you put a strong color in all that grayness, it looks vulgar. But all these dusty colors look absolutely amazing there. And that, say, say, orchid pink would look really just the right temperature, you know, for the rest of the things. So it kind of grew like that. And then we found, you know, certain colors sold more. And I mean, we were the only people doing black. Can you imagine you couldn't buy black anywhere? Actually, the only person that did black was Kiki Byrne, and she was amazing. When I found a black dress in there, I was like, ugh, incredible. Talking of colour, you you know, back in the day, which, I mean, I couldn't quite get my head around, um, but, you know, when you were doing Viva, you would do matchy-matchy, so you would do a T-shirt. Yes. You would do in black. You would do, you know, all these different accessories, all... And they would all be in the same black. But the, the problem is there wasn't Pantone. So you couldn't say to the different manufacturers, this is the black I want. Um, you know, a huge process for you to make sure everything did match. Yeah. No, what we had one person sitting and matching swatches that came in from the dyers before they started dyeing. Because and I'm not saying black, but say any of the pinks and things like that. And they would be matched with all the different fabrics and so on. You know, they'd, ha they'd have to get it right. And they used to get it right. Uh, and then the tights were very important and the socks and uh, scarves and the hats. But you see, it, it worked in the sales because once somebody got one piece, they would buy the hat and they buy the scarf and so on. And the makeup to match. Yes. Biba Makeup was bringing in a lot of income at this time. Oh, yes. Huge. Well, we we had our third shop. We, we finished uh, the interior 
the cosmetic counter, which was going to be, and uh, it said, come on, Barbara, we've only got talcum powder on here. <laughs> Better fill it up with cosmetics. So the whole idea was to have cosmetics before that, but we didn't have time to do it. And uh, to go with all the look, so on. Actually, it was Dell and I went down to um, a huge factory in um, that did all the Revlon stuff for lipstick, right? And uh, we arrived there and we suddenly, it, it's a real sort of, it's a room full of men sitting around a table, sort of like 20 men sitting around a cosmetic, you know, they're all cosmetic guys that work there. I, I wanted a brown lipstick. So I went, you know, for this sort of vintage look of, uh, sepia look of photography so I had a piece of chocolate with me and I said to these guys I want the lipstick to this chocolate I had a dark chocolate and and uh, uh, one with milk chocolate as well and they looked at me and said no way we can't possibly do this is you're joking I said well I'm buying hello <laughs> To that sort of color here, and uh, so then they say, "Okay, we'll we'll send one one of your pieces of chocolate to the girls in the in the lab." And uh, two three minutes later, all the girls come jumping, "Great, it's black chocolate! How fantastic!" They were all jumping with joy, and we sold out with our first I don't know two hundred pieces that we bought of lipstick was like in in half an hour, and we were in the business. That's how we used to be able to test things, which was amazing. And then, then you go rolling out. Oh, golly. And Martin, was this sort of experimentation in terms of the market commonplace in the London fashion scene at this time? Well, I think the thing about Bieber, I think, was Barbara was very aware of her customer, but she didn't dictate to her customer. She would see what would happen. As you said, Barbara, you know, you need to be on the wheel of fashion, what you call the wheel of fashion. Either you're, if you're a little bit too early, it won't sell. And if yeah. you're a little bit too late, then no one's going to buy it. So you need to yeah. be on the wheel of fashion and it needs yeah. to be... It's like two feet before. Yeah, exactly. And, but as you say, if you have a shop, you put something in the shop, if people like it, they're going to buy it. So you know if it's yeah. going to go. You can um, pick if they don't, it's going to go. So it was a very good way of you understanding what the market was. Yeah. Um, and talking about people understanding the market and other companies, when you did your big Bieber, uh, the Bieber boot, all the colours, all the, the boots that you would sell, you'd throw the boxes out the back and then you'd have all the other companies coming around to see what, what colours were selling and what sort of shoes were selling. So they were doing their market research in your beats. <laughs> amazing. But then it's funny because when you're sitting with, you know, you've got your office people and blah, 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 but you're very attached to the shop people and, and they're moaning at you and you pick up all the vibes of the uh, people walking around, you know, of what they're after or what they don't like, which is number one. And then you can get a little bit ahead with them. But I mean, like the boots, we sold 9,000 pairs of boots and I was like nagging fits. All the, <laughs> this is the happy marriage. I've got to have boots because I wanted them. He said, no, we're not doing any more shoes. It costs a fortune to have shoes out there because look, look, we're stuck with left feet now from some shoes we did. And uh, he said, I don't, I don't know why they're all left foot. I, I can't understand. But do you realize how much money you've got tied up? Okay, so he, eventually I give, give him bill, and then, then we ordered 100, and they went like in a couple of hours. And we were in, in the shoe business. I mean, it was incredible. In the early 1970s, Barbara, you yourself described Biba as a smoothly running engine. And, you know, everything was going very well, but what happened in the mid-1970s? Because you had taken on a partner who I believe her name was Dorothy Perkins, and their investment had really allowed for this expansion of the business to happen. 
At that time, you had also already expanded to Bergdorf Goodman in the U.S. And I think in, in Martin's book, or both of your books, you note that in the very first week of sales at Bergdorf Goodman, the, the little boutique had pulled in $30,000, which would be about the equivalent of $200,000 today, which is amazing. So, you know, at this point in the 70s, things seem to have been going very, very well for you. We had two partners who were marvelous. They were Dorothy Perkins, and they were incredible partners. And they were retailers, we were retailers, and they used to come in and just laugh at how much money we were taking. And, and it helped them to grow as well. And they could understand everything. And it's in this moment when things were going so well that it all came crashing down. And not because the business was doing poorly by any means, but rather because Dorothy Perkins decided to sell her company, which was, of course, a part owner in Biba. The company that bought Dorothy Perkins didn't want Biba, which is a travesty. They just wanted to own the building Big Biba was in. Develop, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, thought for about two years and then we can... Yeah, you have to remember in the early 70s as well, there was problems with land. So British land, who who owned lots of properties, they bought Dorothy Perkins. Yes. Barbara was in business with, they bought Dorothy Perkins specifically so they could own those properties. And the biggest property and the most, you know, um, property that would earn the most money was Big Beaver. They just wanted Barbara out. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, the, unfortunately, the whole thing, just because of yeah. circumstances, ended really rather abruptly. That just has to be heartbreaking. Well, I was in the office once and Fitz rang me in and he said, listen, this is what's happening. You realise what's going to happen. Do we still want to go on? I said, yeah, like, like how I do. Oh, fuck that bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, no, it was an incredible experience, really. It's funny you should talk about Bieber now. You know, that when it finished, when your Bieber finished in 1975, yeah, you know, people just did not want the Bieber story to end, and so it just continued. Yeah, and then, you know, obviously, we're talking about Bieber now as if it's still alive, and it is, uh, in some senses, still alive. Those lessons that you taught the rest of the high street, you know, that. We've got Bieber really on every single high street across the world. But what's interesting about the Bieber label is it's gone on, it's been bought by different companies, um, it's had lots of different incarnations, but we all know the Bieber story, we all know the Bieber history. What was it like, Barbara, to have this retrospective of your career and to look back on Bieber after all these years and see all the work you'd produced? Oh, man, you have to move forward. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) Barbara, do you have any opinions since you said don't look to the past, move forward? We're curious what your thoughts are in the fashion industry today. Do you have any thoughts, especially compared to what you pioneered in the 60s? So much of that remains relevant today. Yeah, I wonder how, well, I was chatting to some people in, in Macy's down the road here, and they were telling me that they just don't have the stock. There's no stock left, only what they have in, in the shop. And I think that's what's going to hit everybody. Well, I think, I think also what Bieber did, you know, Bieber was that, certainly with Big Bieber, it was that whole, you went in, it was about indulgence, you know, and it closed in 75. And now on the high street, I mean, the high street is dying. I don't know what it's like in America, but certainly in England, so many shops have closed. One, because obviously... The economic crisis that yeah. began 10 years ago yeah. so we've got covid yeah. now of all times if anything if people needs to be on the high street it's that that's what's going to pull people to the high street that's what's going to save the yeah. high street at the moment everyone shops online um yeah completely soulless Um, activity. Yeah, the experience of Biba was certainly part of the thrill of shopping there. It wasn't only about getting your hands on the clothes. And really, like you said, Martin, shopping online, you simply don't get that same experience. And this is something curious because even before the pandemic, I have been seeing this a little bit here and there in New York City over the last few years that retailers are jumping on this bandwagon of producing events and experiences as part of their branding. But all of that 
pales in comparison to the mastery of all of this that was the legendary Biba. Thank you all so much. This was really, really wonderful. It was wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You know, Cass, Biba may have shuttered its doors in 1975, but Barbara's career as a designer is far from over. And she talks quite openly about how she was initially devastated when Biba closed. She said, quote, Biba had been my life, my dream, and it was gone. It was like losing a child. I'm not exaggerating. To me, it was just as bad as that. I went through agony. And really, her and Fitz needed to put some distance between themselves and London at this moment. So they moved to Brazil for about a decade, and they launched a new label called Barbara Hulaniki, which offered women's wear, children's wear, and accessories between 1976 and 1986. And during this time period, uh, the Barbara Hulaniki label also did a lot of partnerships with the French fashion brand Cacharelle and the Italian label Fiorucci. And then in the 1980s, uh, the Barbara Hulaniki label also opened several boutiques in London. Yeah, and starting in the 1990s, Barbara took on increasing amounts of interior design jobs. She created the interiors of the famed Marlin Hotel in Miami South Beach, for instance. Which I've stayed at. Oh, They're nice. Fabulous. <laughs> yes. And her work has even garnered awards from the American Institute of Architects. She now calls Miami home, and this is a place where, quote, the Hulaniki name is associated with interiors, homeware, and home furnishings. Today, the legend of Biba retains a cult-like following among fashionistas with devoted fans paying thousands of dollars for complete ensembles that once in total cost less than 50 pounds. And while Biba's business model at the time set the precedent for many of the fast fashion brands today, at the time, you know, beginning in the 1960s, Biba was seen as a true innovator because of their business model. And the awareness of the deleterious effects of fast fashion were not even yet known when Biba closed their doors in 1975. So in the words of Martin Pell, quote, the Biba retail revolution will be its legacy. Retail as theater, consumerism as a leisure activity, the company name attached to a lifestyle as well as its products, Biba was a product and symptom of post-war consumer society. In an overwhelmingly corporate world, it was an experiment, and more significantly, an experience that will never be repeated. Biba is dead. Long live Biba. Long live Biba. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider celebrating the bit of theater in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Remember, we always love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so by emailing us at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can always DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where we post images to accompany each week's episode. And always follow along on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday. Dressed, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.